This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the director of Church Society, and I'm joined for this heresy half hour by Dr Chris Moore, who is a vicar in the Diocese of Hereford and our regional director down there in the south-southwest. Hi, Chris. Hello, Lee. Half an hour of fun for old and young. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what our heresy hot, her hot heresy half hour is all about. Yes, we're looking at the hot restlessness of heretics, as St Augustine described it. Looking at some of the, the great heresies that are around today and ways of misunderstanding the faith or deliberately twisting the faith um, that are around and that people have propagated over the years. Today, I thought uh, we'd look at um, a survey that I saw mm. recently um, that had been done of evangelical believers mm-hmm. um, in the UK. And in this survey, they were given the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Do you think that's true? or false. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And you know what, Chris? A staggering and shocking 74%, 74% of people surveyed agreed with that statement about Jesus. And you know, that statement is not only untrue and unbiblical, but it has actually been universally condemned as a heresy by every branch of Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, Mm. since the earliest days. It it might be what cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, but it isn't Christianity, is it? No. There was a council, was there not? Do I remember correctly that the chap who said that received a slap from St. Nicholas of Myra? You got a slap from Santa. (laughs) I think that's actually a, a medieval romantic it's legend. It's a great story, uh, nonetheless. But it is a great story <laughs> that often comes back at Christmas. Yep. And I think, but didn't he also lose his um, his uh, his Episcopal see for doing such a naughty thing? That We're not commending that as a way of dealing with heresy, are we? Go and punch a heretic in the face. Uh, no, I suppose we're not. I also seem to remember that he also was, had to spend the night in the cells because he kept falling asleep during the debates. But that uh, if, we, if we impose that into General Synod, none of us would be left. okay so this is actually a heresy did you know that listeners that it's a heresy to say that jesus is the first and greatest created being created by god because he's not of course a created being at all Mm. he's not the first and greatest creature he is in himself god and i mean we could look at the the creeds and the councils of the church we could look at the 39 articles the canons of the church the book of common prayer all these things to establish that this is known as a heresy but here's a revolutionary thought why don't we start with scripture chris we had another podcast didn't we another heresy half hour looking at the doctrine of revelation and decided there that scripture is the word of god so um, why don't we begin by looking at uh, some passages of Scripture uh, briefly before we look at some of the ways in which mm. we could get this wrong. Let's look first at Matthew chapter 1, a, a very Christmassy text. Ho, ho, ho. Have you preached on this at Christmas? I preached on it. It's on the lect- You, being a good faithful lectionary preacher, would know it was there just recently. 
Of course, yeah. absolutely. So Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what do we see about Jesus here, Chris? Well, we can certainly see that something was afoot. I think... Something was afoot, <laughs> some, yes. Something was odd. Something was strange here. Now, I think we see here, obviously, that that link with um, his divine nature. We see that his very name is God with us. We see that this was something long looked forward to, that this is something which is um, witnessed to in the scriptures. This is part of God's uh, redemptive history. We shall We see that he's a saviour, he will save his people from their sins. But we also see that he is human, she will bear a son. And his, his human nature comes through from, from Mary. So I think mm. we see in this, this whole kind of divine human uh, makeup of, of the person of Christ. Right. So there's something definitely human about him because he's come from this genealogy previously in the yeah, chapter yeah. um chapter one of matthew he comes from a long line of human beings yes. uh, sinful human beings um israelites moabites all sorts of people included in there he is part of that line through mary yeah he gets his, his substance from her but he's also called god with us so there's a there's an intimation there that there's he's not an ordinary human being or a, a created being. What about Psalm two? I also uh, think about here. So in Psalm two, which has often been well throughout church history, been understood as a psalm about Christ because it actually has the word Christ in it in the Greek. Um, he is the anointed one. Um, it talks about uh, this anointed one, and the Lord says to him, "You are my son." Today I have begotten you. So he is a son of God, a king, but he's also a human somehow uh, in this in this psalm. So there is certainly something about the son. He's also to be obeyed. I mean, you're to kiss the son, mm. lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And you're to serve the Lord. I wonder if he's been called Lord here as well. Um, so Psalm mm. 2, an ancient uh, sort of testimony to the fact that there would be a king who would be somehow divine. And I think you can even see that in the, the prophecy given to to David in 2 Samuel 7, that, you know, there will be one mm -hmm. of your line forever on the throne. Now, that was understood yes. at the time, obviously, as being somebody from the family, but actually within Christ we have that literal forever on the throne because of, you know, one aspect of being divine is being eternal. And I think it's just interesting that we've, we've got this here in Psalm 2. We've got that there in Isaiah 7. The ingredients for our understanding have been given to us already, that they are there in, in the Old Testament. And we find that suddenly Jesus comes and suddenly all these Old Testament prophecies sort of shine and come and we can see how this works. Because I'm sure there are plenty of 
heads being scratched at the time. Yes, and they didn't quite get it until it actually happened. No. And we have somebody who's a king, but who's also eternal. He's going to live forever because uh, he's God. Um, and, and that's how it's going to be fulfilled. What about Romans 1 as well? In Romans chapter 1, where Paul's just introducing this magnificent uh, long letter. In Romans 1, he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand to his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, Mm. according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What do we see about Jesus Christ, our Lord, in these verses? Well, I think we we are still seeming that the similar pattern, we've got that Davidic descent, that genealogy, we have that flesh, um, human fleshness, but a contrasted then to this declaring to be the Son of God. And I think it's interesting, this this business of the resurrection of the dead as well, because you know, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection, that we've got that declaration that the resurrection of Jesus points to the fact there is something more going on. And that's a, a physical act. It's an external, objective thing that happened. We can see something of Jesus's divinity actually in the resurrection. Life cannot be killed. And so the resurrection... Mm-hmm you know, Jesus walks through and walks out of the uh, the tomb because of that. But I think you've got... Certain- does he, um, in those in those words in Romans 1, um, does he suddenly become the son of God when he's raised from the dead? Well, I wouldn't want to say that. No, it seems like he's declared to be the son of God. It's a sort of yes. open demonstration, but it's not like he suddenly becomes the son of God. No, no, no. Um, because we know from um, Matthew one that he was already the Son of God. So, and you um, and you have okay. that in 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 Mark's gospel going through. Mm. And it's interesting that in Mark he begins in obviously by referring back to the prophets, but right from the outset, the Son of God, that that declaration is given to us, and the demons recognize we know who you are, the Holy One of God. But yeah. but the irony there being that the teachers of the law, those who should know, didn't know. But no, he, mm. he's an eternally Son. I mean, there's a nice early church argument about uh, on this, which basically says that God is eternally Father. And we see God referred to as Father from little, every now and again in the Old Testament. God is eternally Father, so the Son must be eternally Son because a father has to have a son or a child. And so there is that eternalness. And John, I think, then refers to that in John's prologue. He doesn't start with genealogies. He doesn't start with the prophets. He starts in the beginning was the word. So we have that sense of, eternality because to be divine is to be eternal but we also have that sense of something occurring at Bethlehem which means that we now have a human nature coming into play as well yeah and we also see that in let the reader understand another of Paul's letters called Hebrews um uh, I know that's a debate but I I think it's by Paul Uh, Hebrews chapter one he says Uh, Long ago, uh, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So that's who we're talking about, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what what do we see here? We see that Jesus is 
God's son and heir. Yes. And we also see that it was through him, through Jesus, that everything was created. So Jesus ah. can't be the greatest of God's creation or whatever the question was that you asked at the beginning. <laughs> Indeed. Because actually, no, Jesus is the one through whom everything was created. I mean, mm. we can see echoes of that in... Um, if we understand Jesus to be the word, which is eternal, we can see that in, in creation. God speaks a word and everything is created. So we have Jesus as that creating words. He's not a creation. He's, he's that eternal. He's the exact yeah. imprint of his nature, which is an extraordinary claim. I often think about these high things said about Jesus, like in Hebrews. You know, There were people who would have listened or would have read this who knew Jesus and and could accept such a high thing said of him. What an extraordinary thing. You know, if you're writing this 20 or 30 years ago, it's about writing something about somebody who died in the 2000s and saying that they are divine, the exact imprint of the image of God. And, and yet people said, yes, yes, he is. It seems so in the rest of that chapter as well, that there's a whole list of quotes that God is apparently saying to the Son. Um, yeah. Uh, and these quotes from the Old Testament, and one of them in verse six is, let all God's angels worship him. So this son is worthy of worship. I mean, you only worship God, yeah, right? But, so, very true. Um, but then it's even clearer in, in verse eight. Um, God says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, made you Christ. So it seems like you can distinguish God from the son but the Son is also God. So, you know, the Bible itself here is giving us some of the um, conceptual background that we need. I suppose another place to go uh, might be another of Paul's letters, uh, Philippians um, chapter 2. Um, and in Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 6 to 11, we have this beautiful early church hymn, perhaps, um, that, that might have been sung, but it's certainly here. It's, it's a beautiful um, poem. Uh, that tells us about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we see here about Jesus, Chris? Well, there we are. I think what we don't see is that um, we have Jesus becoming less than God at any stage. And I know people talk about what does this emptying himself mean and what does yeah. this taking the form of a servant mean? But I think what we found is that we, we find that um, I can remember somebody, I think it was Michael Green at a spring harvest all those many long years ago when I was somebody with, with hair and enthusiasm and optimism, that uh, rather than just being a grumpy bald man as I am now, <laughs> the in talking about this being a J-shaped passage um, because you have Jesus being fully divine, that he's there. He doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped because he has it. He doesn't need to grasp it. It's there. He's got it. But he takes this, comes down and takes his form of a servant. Uh, he humbles himself, but then he has this upturn at the bottom of the J so that he is then raised and glorified and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
the great glory of this is that as he is glorified, he comes down and as he's then glorified and taking people up, he takes us with him in that sense. He saves us from our sins. So we, we see, again, Lovely. we have a God who is, a Jesus rather, who is understood to be eternal. You know, he's if he's emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, he must have been there prior to taking the form of the servant. He must have existed prior, therefore, to the incarnation, to the conception uh, and all of that, which is why I find it, sorry, yeah. I find it fascinating yeah. that you, you have this passage, just going back to, to Hebrews, that you've got this great long list of passages from the Old Testament which demonstrate that you have in the Old Testament already this two this this kind of mm-hmm. you've got all the tools that you need there's a really fascinating uh, piece of work written by justin martyr at about 150 ad uh, dialogue with trifo a jew as it's called and he's going through the old testament and demonstrating that you have this appearing god to, to use a common phrase of his and the appearing god is christ and there's this one just in, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's you know I'm going on a sidetrack. But he talks about how the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. The Lord appears. It's the Lord in capitals in the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. And then the Lord is there talking. The Lord then goes uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's all sorts of stuff. And a couple of chapters on it says, uh, "Then the Lord raid on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven." And Justin Martyr says, well, isn't that interesting? You've got this figure who's described as the Lord in human form speaking to Abraham and then the Lord out of heaven reigns sulfur as if, well, you've got a Lord in heaven and you've got a Lord speaking to Abraham. Have we not got there now? He might be overregging the pudding. I grant you that. He might be. I think. I don't think Calvin doesn't really like that interpretation. Um, well, he, so we'd have to. He may not. But what I'm trying to say is, but that. it's just interesting that you've got this early Christian, and we were only here at 150, this early Christian witness saying that mm. to a Jew, all you need to understand the divinity of Christ is there in your scriptures, in our scriptures. Interesting, looking at the Old Testament, I mean, there in Isaiah, um, the Lord, again, capital letters, Lord, it's Yahweh, you know, he says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. To me, the Lord. And then Paul, a good uh, law-observing Jew who knows his scriptures can say with a straight face that Jesus is going to have the name above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Mm. So then you ask, who does Paul think Jesus is? But he thinks that Jesus is the Lord to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall mm. swear allegiance, like Isaiah said. So clearly we've got testimony here in the scriptures to Jesus, this human being this human servant who could die on a cross, who is also somehow the one with the name above every name, the Lord. Um, so what do we learn here from all these scriptures? I think we we learn what it says in the creed. We learn that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. Um, There is another great summary of what we've learned, I think, which is in 
Article 2 of the 39 Articles, which, which gives, you, gives us this clearly. But I think it, it, you can see now it's a summary of these biblical passages. Um, article 2 says, The Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and the manhood, would join together in one person, never to be divided, of which is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, to reconcile his Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. So what's this saying? It's saying, look, look at Jesus. He's clearly human, but he's also clearly divine. He is not um, the first and greatest creature created by God. But there are various ways to get this wrong, aren't there, Chris? Well, it seems, yeah. I mean, listening to that and, and looking, obviously, what we're finding in the scriptures as well, you have this insistence that Jesus is fully God. You have this insistence that Jesus is fully divine sorry, fully human, so fully God and fully human. And then it seems to me you have a whole lot of issues when people are trying to overemphasize one aspect of those to the detriment of the other. So you end up with a Jesus, mm. say, who is only human and not divine. He's just a great teacher. He's a great example. He's a great prophet. Well, that ignores all the divinity of Christ that we see in the scriptures. Or we might have on the opposite extreme a Jesus who is only divine and kind of appears like a phantasm or a hologram to be human, but actually isn't human at all. It's just that that's a kind of almost a dressing up thing that he put that God has put on. So I think, and there's all sorts of ones in between, um, but it seems to me that we have to accept that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And if we reduce either of those we are finding ourselves in conflict with with some scripture or, or other. Yeah. And and I suspect the harder we try and work out as to how that happens, the probably the more likely we are to get it wrong, because this is something which is just some great mystery of God and some great miracle of God. But it's a mystery and a miracle that is revealed to us. Absolutely. So we know it. It's not yeah. like a mystery we have to just go, oh, well, we can never Oh, no, no, no. We can understand what yeah. he's revealed. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing, I've got seven ways that I wrote down that I think we could get this wrong. And the first would be, we could just say he isn't God. We could say he's the first and greatest creature made by God. Um, and, and that, um, well, we've completely against all the scriptures we've looked at. He's in very nature God. In the beginning, he was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. If if he's something else, if he's a sort of superman, a superhuman creature, then he's not really fully human like us. But also he's not fully God either, if he's a sort of third thing, a superhuman. yeah. And so actually he can't be a mediator between God and mankind. Um, he can't represent us. No, because he's not one of us. He's not one of us if he's if he's not fully human, um, and he can't he can't be God as a mediator between God and man either, because he's not fully human or fully divine. So that completely wrecks our view of Jesus, but it ruins our chances of being saved as well if we say he isn't God. So we have got to be careful there. Mm. Um, what about if we say he was an adopted son? 
which some people have said is sort of adoptionist. No, errors. you get that. You see that sometimes linked to the baptism of of, of Jesus with the, the Holy Spirit. Yes. This is my son, as if that's kind of some declaration of adoption at that point. The, the issue, of course, with that is that um, God, the son, as it were, or the son of God, just becomes a kind of mere title. Um, if Jesus is adopted at a certain point in time, he is no longer divine, obviously, because divinity is eternal. That's part of what it is for God to be God, to be eternal. And it also means that we have a, a Jesus who is, well, again, he's unable to represent, his divinity, well, it isn't there, is it? I can't quite see how we can understand that Jesus is is divine. Uh, if it's just through some kind of mechanism of um, of adoption like that. I mean, it, mm. It, it, mm. it's a nature issue here that we're looking at, not a legal adoption, that Jesus is in very nature yes. divine. He's the exact imprint of, as it said in Hebrews, of the divine nature. And if we make that temporal, so it begins at a certain point, then it's no longer divine nature. Well, other people have got this wrong. The third way I think that people get this wrong is to say that Jesus is similar to God. We wouldn't deny that. He's similar to God, but he's not exactly the same as God. He's of similar nature to God. There's a way of sort of getting round things. He's he's a God with a small G, if you like, rather than a capital G God. So God the Father made him first and then he created everything else. And there was a theologian called Arius in the early church who said something like this. Arius said there was a time when the Son of God didn't exist. Um, but then he did, and then he was made to be the greatest creator of everything, mm. who's very similar to God. Um, <laughs> what, what do we say to that? Uh, how, how did that pan out? Well, he certainly didn't pan out well for, for, pan out well for Arius, but I think it's, it's the same problem, that we're ending up with a Jesus who is, is not divine. We're ending up with a, with a creaturely Jesus, and how can that creaturely Jesus save us if jesus is called savior how can he do that unless he is god for it is god who saves uh what authority does he have to forgive sins this is a big issue obviously when the debates with the teachers of the law well if he's not divine he has no authority to forgive sins we end up almost with a sort of a demigod or a, a kind of starting to work down a pantheon of gods in some way um mm. but, but god is god is one and you know, going back to that passage that you read from Matthew, he didn't say that uh, the greatest creature, greatest creature, will be with us. It said God with us. Um, again, I think there's that kind of logic, isn't it, with within the early church that Jesus had to be fully human so that we may be fully saved. That Jesus had to represent us fully. He had to live the fully sinless life as a fully human being. So he has to be fully human, but he also has to be fully divine so that he may have that strengthening power to live that perfect life so that he may forgive sins. And in the end, he is called in the scriptures God. I always think it's a bit of a shame for poor old doubting Thomas, as he's called. It was Thomas who first <laughs> said, my Lord and my God. I mean, Thomas got it right. You know, it's not... It, I think to just call him, categorising him as doubting well, is not fair to Then the that's chat. the next way that we could get this wrong, isn't it? We could say, obviously he's God. I mean, look at all those passages in the Bible. It's obviously he's God. Look at his miracles, etc. It's, it's clearly he's God. He rose from the dead. It can't be anything else. So he can't really have been truly, fully human. He must have just been pretending or appearing to be human for some reason, to teach us. 
Uh, the trouble with that is it just ends up being a bit deceitful, really. God's not meant to lie. Um, well, indeed. And, and t- Titus 1 says God does not lie. Mm. Um, and if he was only pretending to be human, he was only pretending to to eat and to sleep and to cry and to die on the cross in place of humans, um, well, that rather affects my salvation too, doesn't it? Maybe my salvation is only pre- pretend. He can't be my representative and my substitute if he isn't of the same nature with me, with human substance like mine. Mm. Um what other heresies might we say? Um, what, what would be a fifth one? Well, I think you, you get so you get the heresies which undercut some, and others which don't, um, you know, undercut the divinity. Some undercut the the humanity. But you get others that seem to kind of try and merge the two together. So you end up with a with a kind of a third thing. So you've got a fully you've got God, you've got human, and then you've got this kind of third thing. So there um you get I used to categorize this as a bit as the sort of the heresy of sooty, but you, you end up with Jesus with a <laughs> human body, like a puppet, but his mind or his uh, spirit or his will are divine. So um that heresy known as Apollinarianism, that 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 Jesus is it's it's called what? What did you call Apollinarianism. it? Apollinarianism. Can you spell that? Because you know lots, it's a lots good of one P's spell, and lots of L's. There uh, we are. Then. Apollinarianism. <laughs> but that idea that Jesus, um, his mind. So Jesus is fully human, but his mind is the logos, is the word. So he's not mm. fully human because his mind isn't human. Or you find in the Sixth Ecumenical Council a great debate over what was known as another good Scrabble word, monothelitism. But this idea that, I'm not going to say that again, uh, but that idea that Jesus's will was divine. So he's fully human, yeah, 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 but his will was divine. And then people said, yeah, but what about Gethsemane when Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done? But so you get this kind of hybrid Jesus who's neither divine nor human. He's become a third thing. And there's a whole He's a Prius. He's a hybrid He's a car. Prius. Petrol and electric. Indeed. And that, that's a Prius heresy. It is. It <laughs> is. And it renders us with the Jesus who is neither human nor divine. He's not a mediator because he's neither of these things. And right. you get a lot of those sorts of things, or the human nature of Jesus is somehow dissolved into the divine nature of Jesus because the divine nature is so much greater that like a drop of wine into an ocean of water, whatever, whatever. But there um, are those My sixth hybrids. way of doing it wrong would be to say that there are two persons, not one. Clearly there are two people being talked about here. So you resolve all the tension in these scripture passages by saying Jesus isn't one person with two natures, but he's two persons. There's a human Jesus and there's a divine Christ, a Jesus of history and a Christ of faith. That ends up with us just having two highlighter pens going through the Gospels saying, oh, this bit's the human Jesus, so I'll colour that in blue. And uh, this bit's the divine Jesus, so I'll colour that in yellow. Um, And that's a funny, odd thing to be doing. I mean, if this was true, could we really say that God became man? The word became flesh. I mean, that would undermine the whole idea of the incarnation. And it's not really very helpful um, if we need, as the Bible says we do, one mediator between God and man. Um, and I suppose my final one would be just say, well, don't say Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Let's let's split it 50-50. Let's just say he's 50-50, which is just another clever way of trying to deny that he's fully God and fully man doesn't seem to have the support of scripture um well, you, it makes jesus into neither god nor human but some kind of third thing a mashup a hybrid a mutant well you can't be um, sort of can't be right 
you can't be any more a little bit god than you can be just a little bit pregnant you either are or you aren't <laughs> Uh, that's it. So there we are. We've sorted that one, Chris. We've had our heresy half hour. We've sorted out that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is fully divine. He is God. And he is also fully human. He's one of us. He he came to be a saviour for his people. Um, he is a person. Um, dying for his people with a human genealogy and human followers. So there we are. We've sorted the uh, Christology out, Chris. Indeed. And I think something to certainly, you know, when we go to our carol services, when we hear our readings in those carol services, it's a thing just to watch out for and to glory in, isn't it? That we have this great picture of Christ depicted in all those readings of one who is fully God, one who is fully man. And all of that being done for us and for our salvation. What an extraordinary expression of grace that we see in all of that. Well, what should we do next time, Chris? Shall we do the heresy of heresies, heresies about the Trinity? Well, we seem to be treading in that direction, don't we? Let's do that next time. Join us next time on the Church Society podcast, uh, Heresy Half Hour. Um, Again, it'd be great to have you join us to listen in for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm